Want to grow your connection with God, learn how to share your faith, and support others? St. Joseph's College of Maine has just the micro-credential for you, becoming an effective catechist. Enrollments are open now. For more information, call 508-925-4762. The General Secretariat on Thursday released a document for the continental stage of the Synod on Synodality, which will provide a frame of reference and form the basis for the work of the second stage of Synodal Path launched by Pope Francis in 2021. The 45-page working document titled Enlarge the Space of Your Tent covers topics raised by members of the Church, submitted by 112 of the world's 114 bishops' conferences. It's entitled, the document, listen to this, Enlarge the Space of Your Tent. I don't even know if this is some LGBTQ plus sort of inside joke. The people who feel at home in the church feel the absence of those who don't. The theme that they chose for it is a quote from the prophet uh, Isaiah, enlarge the space of your tent. So it's kind of an ancient image from the desert in a way, And the idea of be more welcoming, make the tent, literally, make your tent bigger. Do not hold back. Hey, Inside the Vatican listeners, it's Colleen. The first global report for the Synod on Synodality came out last week, and it's the Church's first official word on what they've been hearing in all of those Synod listening sessions around the world. It's not a huge document, it's 46 pages, but it packs in a lot of the concerns that were expressed by quoting directly from some of the at least 1,100 synod reports that arrived at the Vatican. That number includes, as we've said before, 112 of the world's 114 bishops' conferences, but then also includes documents from 15 Oriental Catholic churches, 17 out of the 23 offices of the Roman Curia, that's the central offices of the Vatican, reports from the heads of religious orders, consecrated life groups, lay associations and movements, and more than a thousand contributions from unofficial groups that sent their feedback straight to the Vatican for a variety of reasons. And then there are way more digital synod responses that came in from the Vatican's effort to reach out to Catholic social media influencers to hold Zoom listening sessions and send out surveys to try to reach some more young people online. So, Joining me today to discuss our biggest takeaways from this global document are my usual co-host, Jerry O'Connell, and one of the producers of this show, Father Ricardo da Silva. We all bring different perspectives on this document. Uh, Jerry is obviously European, Ricardo is from South Africa, I'm coming from the States. We're also in different life circumstances. Jerry's married with kids, I'm married without kids, Ricardo's a Jesuit priest. So we wanted to have a conversation together about what stood out to us from our different perspectives in this document. Jerry and Ricardo, welcome to Inside the Vatican. Hi, Colleen. It's great to be with you. And good to be with you too, Jerry. Thank you. All right. So let's go around first and just each give a couple of our big takeaways from the document. Ricardo, since you're our special guest this week, you want to go first? So three very quick things from my end. I think the first, you've kind of stepped on my line. So Uh, thank you. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Uh, Not at all. Uh, First, that very point that you pointed out, which is that the report quotes directly from the reports that the Vatican received from all over the world. So, you know, there are long and direct quotes from Ethiopia, from Chad, from the United States, from the Union of International Superiors General. I mean, it's just, it's a long list of quotes that we read. And that's really wonderful because 
I think there's less of a threat of saying it was manipulated and reinterpreted for us. And so the fact that it appears in that voice, well done to the Vatican. The other thing is, is I think we're hearing lots of things for the first time and, and really three things that caught my attention. The first was the use of LGBTQIA. You know, that is probably the first time that that's being used in a document, referring to people who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, asexual. Even polygamy is mentioned in this document, which again seems a new thing, you know, hearing in, in a document where the church teaches clearly about polygamy. And then the other thing that I thought was novel about this is that the Synod Office has gone out and procured voices. It's recruited voices that it wanted to hear from and not just waited simply to receive reports from these people, but they actually went out and looked for these digital influencers who could begin the conversation on social media and recruit voices that they wanted to receive, which I thought was pretty novel. My final point, at least, that I want to raise attention to is this idea of a synodal liturgy. And it says this in the report. This is number 91 of the report. So right at the end of the report, many reports strongly encourage the implementation of a synodal style of liturgical celebration that allows for the active participation of all the faithful. From rethinking a liturgy to too concentrated on the celebrant, to the modalities of active participation of the liturgy, to the access of women to ministerial roles. So on one level, it's like, oh yeah, we've heard all this before. Although talking about a reform of the liturgy does sound a little bit more like, you know, a council yet again. Um, And we've heard this idea of another Vatican council. But on the other hand, what surprised me was the fact that this particular quote comes from the report from Ethiopia. I wasn't expecting to hear this kind of reflection from Ethiopia, simply because the church in Africa is often uh, portrayed as much more liturgically conservative. And so to speak about a kind of renovation in liturgy and liturgical style is, I think, novel. All right. Jerry, your takeaways. Well, I was first of all struck by one of the statements in the document, which says this document is will be understandable and useful only if it is read with the eyes of the disciple. Now, I, I think this is significant because in the past, when certainly the secular media, but also the Catholic media, has tended to look for some issue, like Ricardo mentioned earlier, the LGBT, to highlight the story and attract attention. And of course, this risks distorting the whole report. The second thing I was struck by was the image that they used for the report, presenting the church as a tent, a large tent. Uh, We remember that Pope Francis very early on in one of his first interviews, he spoke about the church as a field hospital. Now, this is uh, an even bigger concept, if you wish. It's a large tent with tensions on the ropes that hold the tent, etc. And the image of the tent comes from the prophet Isaiah. And uh, I think it's a, it's a very interesting concept because it offers a, a, an overall image of what this 
synod is about. And uh, Cardinal Holridge was who was happened to be at Japan when the document was presented in the Vatican. He was asked a question: Well, who is invited to the tent? You know, is everybody coming in? And his answer was quite interesting. He said, "All the people created and loved by God, we're all human, so everybody is invited in." He said, "If you say I have not a place for him or for her." Then you have a problem with God, and also with that image of the tent, it's ever expanding, right? That's that's a key part of this. I think the title is "Enlarge the Space of Your Tent." The first thing I'm really interested in is the implication for priests, because uh, this document raises a lot of concerns about the things that priests are going through, right? Like loneliness and burnout. At the same time, it talks about how priests have sometimes stood in the way even of this of this process of the synodal process or simply that they just had really low participation rates and so we're hearing about the problems that priests are facing but maybe not so much from priests themselves and then this is paired with a resounding criticism of clericalism which i i feel like if i were a priest reading this i'd be like well where does this leave me like what what am i supposed to be doing of course, I was also interested in the parts that addressed the role of women in the church. They really spoke to this kind of paradox between women being the ones who are participating the most in this nodal process, who are running things on the parish level, and then at the same time being excluded from decision-making roles. And they really pulled no punches in, in these quotes. There's this one from the International Union of Superiors General, which is the group of women's religious orders, Superiors General. And they say, sexism in decision-making and church language is prevalent in the church. As a result, women are excluded from meaningful roles in the life of the church, discriminated against by not receiving a fair wage for their ministries and services. Women religious are often regarded as cheap labor, and there's a tendency in some churches to exclude women and to entrust ecclesial functions to permanent deacons and even to undervalue religious life without the habit with regard for fundamental equality and dignity of all baptized Christian faithful women and men. So super strong words there on, on sexism in the church. And then also I was interested that in paragraph 64, women's ordination is mentioned. The sentence basically just says there was a big diversity of opinion on this, but still, the fact that this was mentioned in a document that the Pope approved after John Paul II pretty much said, hey, we're going to stop talking about this uh, in 1994, is it's a question that I'd like to raise, raise for you, Jerry, in the second part of this. And then the last bit that stood out to me was the fact that the document spoke about the need for structural or canon law changes. I think this is the first time that we've heard an official document from the Vatican really say what kind of implications this synod could have on the structures of the church. Like there's this part in paragraph 71 where they say the church also needs to give a synodal form and a way of proceeding to its own institutions and structures, particularly with regard to governance, and canon law will need to accompany this process of structural renewal, creating the necessary changes to the arrangements currently in place. And that is in the voice of the synod. This is not from a certain country or a certain group. So I thought that was really interesting. We will take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll kind of respond to what we've heard from one another and have a discussion about it. Stay with us. 
Inside the Vatican is supported by the Hank Center at Loyola University, Chicago. On October 13th, the Hank Center welcomes Tehard Deschardin Fellow, Professor Kathleen Sprouse Cummings, and her lecture, A New Kind of Saint, Catholics and Canonization in the 21st Century. All are welcome in person in Chicago. If you're unable to attend, please register for the live stream at www.luc.edu ccih. St. Joseph's College of Maine recently launched a six-week fully online micro-credential called the Inclusive Classroom, a certificate in teaching children with disabilities for Catholic educators. This credential is designed for teachers and teaching assistants that would like to enhance their knowledge in special education best practices and techniques to ensure inclusion and success for all learners. For more information, call 508-925-4762. Enroll today. All right, welcome back from the break. Now we are going to get into our discussion among the three of us of what we've just heard from one another. So I want to start us out with maybe this this tension around the the hot and spicy questions, right? The controversial issues. It feels like there's a tension here between reading with the lens of a disciple and then also acknowledging what may actually be really new here. Jerry, let me let me toss this to you first. You know, what stood out to you as surprising, if anything, in this? Well, I, I wasn't so surprised with what I found in the document. I, I think we have to distinguish very carefully. This is not a Vatican document. What do you mean? It is a document that has put together the input from the churches around the world. And it says very clearly, this is not a document of the magisterium. It is a document that reflects what is said by people, bishops, priests, lay people, religious, in churches in different parts of the world. That's the first thing. I I think we've got to be very clear about this, that it is a document that's reflecting what has been said and is meant to reflect accurately what is said. A second point is interesting, and you made your point in your presentation, Colleen. You were surprised to see the the question of the ordination of women mentioned. Yeah. And Ricardo said that he's never seen LGBTQIA. He said, we've never seen this in the document. Well, the reality is there is no taboos in what people could say in the local discussion. Pope Francis has been very clear from the beginning of the synodal process. You speak openly what's in your heart. So there are no taboo questions. John Paul II had sought to close the question of the ordination of women and said, you know, discussion is over, no more discussion in the church. I remember at the time, because I remember when the document came out, I remember at the time people saying, shook their heads and said, well, if he thinks this is closed, he is rather misinformed. But Jerry, let me come in there. I mean, you know, just the fact of what you've said, right, that there are no taboo issues here makes this a novel document, right? We have not seen a document like this from the church, at least that I can recall reading, where we have carte blanche, right? Just an open document where people can say what they feel, the kinds of issues that are coming up. That alone makes this a very new document to my to my eyes. And on your point, right, that we should read this with the eyes of the disciple. The document begins with this 
beautiful expression on, in paragraph 14. It's a prayer, Lord, you have gathered all your people in synod. And it goes on and it says, help us to enter these pages as on holy ground, that we are entering the holy ground of people's experiences and people's lives. And I hear what you're saying. And again, you know, it is clear even before it gets into that prayer, paragraph eight talks about how this is not a document of the church's magisterium, nor is it the report of a sociological survey. So it doesn't see itself as, you know, reporting uh, word for word, or at least even in accurate proportion what the people are saying, because it's not a sociological survey. But it does say it is a theological document in the sense that it's orientated to the service of the church's mission, which is to proclaim Christ who died and rose again for the salvation of the world. So it's not a document of the, of the magisterium, but it is absolutely a theological document which has that weight. Yes, but it's a document that's part of a process, so it's not a finished text. I think there is a risk, and I have seen in past sinners, a risk with taking a document and comes out and says, that's what the church is saying. They're making very clear, this is what people around the world are saying, commenting, giving their input. What the church will, is saying will come at the end when the discernment has been made at the Synod of Bishops in October 2023 and 2024, and what the Pope will say at the end of the day. Well, this is an interesting case of um, what we are talking about when we say what the church says, right? Because if we're talking about the church as the people of God, this is what the church is saying. But that's different from what the magisterium or the Pope is saying. The theology question is interesting here, right? Because there is a sense of this being like a capturing of the the sense of the faithful, right? This this idea of um of what church teachings are being received and not received and and what the body of the church is thinking. And then at the same time it's it's a lot more complicated because this is a document that includes non-Catholics too. It includes, as Cardinal Hollerich would say, everyone loved by God. So yeah, I, I think it's a good question, like what standing this has the, the the standing as i understand it it's part of the consultation process it's trying to see what's in people's minds different discussions uh, i spoke to archbishop costello who's the president of the australian bishops conference who's also president of the plenary council mm -hmm. of the australian church which went on for four years yeah, and this was a big synodal process where there were some pretty strong disagreements that then had to be overcome. So he's he's got an interesting story. Yeah, because but, but what is interesting here is that they really were, if you would wish, a trial run for the synod because they had followed many of the rules that the synod is following. I asked him very specifically because he was the only bishop from outside the organization of the Synod, who participated in the Frascati group that actually drafted this document. And I asked him, you've had your experience in Australia, you've listened to what's come in from the different countries around the world. Did anything surprise you? He said, no. He said, practically all the issues that I saw from the reports around the world had arisen also in Australia, except for the fact there were cultural political or uh, linguistic differences, but the, the topics 
were there too. And I, I think this is very interesting that we have a document which is somehow reflecting what is emerging around the world. Jerry, I think it's interesting, though, this idea that, you know, that, again, that there's nothing surprising in this document. And I agree with that from my perspective as somebody in the church, as somebody, you know, thoroughly catechized, theologized. At the same time, this is the first time that the people of God are reading a document like this, right? And so when 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 the people are reading it, they're like, this is new. And certainly that's what I'm hearing from my parishioners. It's like, we haven't heard the Vatican speak like this. So it is true that for priests and for bishops, this is like, oh, yeah, we've been talking about this kind of thing for a long time. And we have, whether for good or for ill. But it is new from the perspective of the distribution now, which means that it goes back to the people and the people are able to read what their bishops and their priests and cardinals are thinking. Yes, the the, the fact is, uh, perhaps what is very new is people have been asked for the first time, what do you think? And people have said for the first time, what do you think? That is very new. And what we are seeing here is what people have been saying. Now, does this shock some people? Sure. People will be shocked because some people think, and in fact, the the document quotes somebody saying, I I, I don't like this idea of the Synod because it's it's all fixed. And uh, other people saying, well, this is going to really upend what the church teaching has been to date. And of course, neither of those positions is is correct. But I I think what is very interesting is people have felt and have said, stated explicitly, and it's in the report, from Pakistan, from other places, it's the first time anybody has asked me what I think about these questions in the church. Yeah, I've got the quote from Pakistan here. It says, people of God remarked on the uniqueness of speaking freely and being heard in organized conversations that were open-ended and attentive with guidance of the Holy Spirit. They spoke of how, after decades of church going, they had been asked to speak for the first time. I feel like that really sums it up. This document deals so much with, you know, lay people being the protagonists of evangelization and it feels like throughout the document there can be a tension uh, between that and the role of priests. It, Ricardo, I want to ask you about this. It feels like to me it's kind of raising some questions about what role priests are supposed to play because, you know, it mentions, uh, as paragraph 19 says, numerous reports mention the fear and resistance on the part of the clergy, but also the passivity of the laity. And then it talks about, it gives us very strong denouncement of clericalism that uh, Sister Natalie Bacar told us in the deep dive is coming from all over the world. And at one point, the document goes out of its way to to say, this is not anti-clerical. And that felt like, you know, the fact that they said that, the fact that they felt the need to say that felt really significant, you know, that that this is how strongly the priests are being criticized in this document. As a priest, I'm curious what your reading of this was, and maybe especially what questions it might have raised for you about the role of a priest in the Synodal Church. Sure. To to answer your question, I want to refer to two points uh, as they are written in the document. There's a widespread perception of a separation between priests and the rest of the people of God. That's number 19. And then that which you were talking about is at 58. The tone of the reports is not anti-clerical. And then it actually explains what it means by that against priests or the ministerial priesthood. Many express deep 
appreciation and affection for faithful and dedicated priests and concerns about the many demands that they face. They also voice the desire for better formed, better accompanied and less isolated priests. And in a whole other part of the document goes into even, you know, uh, homilies and the poor standard of homilies. So a sense that priests are somehow separated from the reality of the faithful, which is distressing to me in the extreme. It didn't strike me that loneliness stood out very strongly in this document. It was basically rather the reticence of priests to comment or to have their input, or the fact that maybe they felt this synodality process was in fact fundamentally challenging or asking, you know, where is your role in the community? And and I think that is a question that is coming out in the document. You know, what is the role of the ordained? What is the essential role of the ordained? Yeah, let, let, let me give an example here, Jerry. So one of the things that I experienced through the synodal process is in the meetings I've been to of priests, where priests basically have seen this as the exercise of the laity, many priests. This is, you know, this is something for the laity to do. They're going to have these conversations. They're going to produce this report. And priests themselves, they felt like they needed to basically announce the initiative and put processes in place in their community that would make this happen, but not that they were communication partners or conversation partners in this process. And that's because that's how priests generally tend to see their role, right? In a position of hierarchy, of leadership, and not in a position of sitting down at a chair and just listening to testimony after testimony after testimony. We're very good at doing that in the confessional. We're very good at doing that in spiritual direction and accompaniment, sort of one-on-one with a person, but put us in front of a group and we feel like we need to teach catechize. I'm, I'm kind of doing it now, right? Yeah. And, and so I think that that's the tension here is like priests didn't really see themselves as integral to the feedback process of this. And so maybe part of it was like they were trying to be anti-clerical by pulling back, but in so doing, they setting themselves apart. I think there were certainly also cases in which there were, you know, parish discussions or small group discussions or whatever. And I, I saw some images of these meetings where it was like you would have like a priest or like two guys in clerics at a head table and then everybody else kind of gathered around. And it, it seemed like, you know, the priest was leading the discussion or having to like field uh, the comments and and maybe stand in a uh, defensive position. You know, obviously I'm just, I'm reading a lot into an image here. There are two possible positions here that we're laying out. One is, uh, you know, of the priest who is like kind of just passively listening, like in the confessional or whatever. And then there's also the priest who wants to stand up and, you know, maybe lead the process, which is also not necessarily the role. And in some cases, to subvert the process, right? We have to be honest. Which it says in the report. Yeah, there have been priests who are not on board with synodality, who are not on board with the Big Tent Church. In fact, the words Big Tent are frightening, I'm sure, to many who are reading it now, um, because they participate in a church of the faithful few, right? The remnants, definitely not the abundant multitude. Uh, and everybody welcome. 
right? We have to be honest about that. There are definitely priests, as, as there are lay people, which the document says as well, um, who contribute to this clericalist attitude by subverting this process, which has clearly been given to us and has been such a fruit of the Holy Spirit. The other thing is the question on the role of the priests. The document goes deeper because the document says all the baptized have responsibilities. They speak about core responsibility of all the baptized. So everybody is responsible. And up to now, too much responsibility has been taken by the priest and the, and the bishop. Lesser responsibility has been taken by lay people. And wh why this is disturbing to some is that it's, it's re-looking at what the different responsibilities should be in the church. The question of co-responsibility, it comes up uh, in this part on the liturgy that I want to talk with you guys about because, you know, we all have experiences of liturgy. We can all weigh in on this. But at the same time, co-responsibility goes, goes far beyond the liturgy. So maybe let's talk about the liturgical reforms. It doesn't give a lot of specifics, but it does lean into this Vatican II vision of a lot more participation of the laity. There was the criticism of homilies that Ricardo mentioned before. And yeah, it seems like there's also a call for women to, you know, take on more of a role, I guess, in, in the sanctuary. I can't, can't find, maybe one of you can, uh, where that exact quote is. So in paragraph 91, which I think is part of that quote that I read in the beginning when I spoke about the liturgy, it talks about rethinking a liturgy too concentrated on the celebrant to the modalities of active participation of the laity to the access of women to ministerial roles. Uh, and it, it keeps talking about that in one instance in the New Zealand report, earlier on in the document, talks about the lack of equality for women within the church is seen as a stumbling block for the church in the modern world. And again, you know, I, th I thought that there was a, a wonderful part of this document. When it talks about the liturgy, it does mention discussion around ordination of women and the diaconate. There is also mention of involving the laity in the preaching of the word. Again, remembering that this is a document for discussion, but it is where the pulse of the people speaks. Yeah. And can I just say like this really resonates with me as a woman in the church and maybe especially in the U.S. church, which has a lot of pockets of places that want to lean pre-Vatican II, right? So places that don't allow altar girls. I remember that was a big, big discussion when I was growing up in the Archdiocese of St. Louis when uh, Cardinal Burke was was the bishop there. I have sat in mass so many times and been like, you know, this, like, this is beautiful. This is mass. This is the height of my faith. But also, why is it only men <laughs> up there? And it's it gets really frustrating. I, I want to toss this over to you, Jerry, to see, you know, what you think about these proposed points on the liturgy and maybe how they tie in with, with the bigger question of women. Well, it's obvious that uh, it's the document is very clear that the Eucharist is principally what brings the community together. And if the community is to, the Synod speaks about communion, participation, and mission. And if you're only gathered together and there's no participation, it's really in contrast, first of all, with what the Vatican II said, but it's also in contrast what people feel. And I, I, I think Pope Francis has often spoken about the people's sense of faith. Yeah. 
And th- there's a sense that they should be participating more. And I, I was struck in this document, not in this part, but in another part where one of uh, the groups says we should give a preferential option for young people. Yeah, yeah. Kind of using the preferential option for the poor language. Because if you go across the churches, and I see here in Rome, uh, how many young people go? They, they are turned off by the sermon. They feel we don't belong in this thing. And uh, this sense of exile from the liturgy, if I can put it that way, is a fact of life in the church today, and it's a fact that has to be addressed. The absence of a priest in many parts of the world from the celebration of the liturgy, maybe once a year, once every two years, is is a major fact, which isn't really highlighted so much in this document as I had expected. But uh, we have to see what's going to come, because this is part of a process. The document speaks about five, what it calls, generative tensions. It's a strange expression. Maybe creative tensions might be another way of putting it. But it's the first one, it says about starting from a radical desire of inclusion, a radical desire of inclusion. And that goes to the heart of the liturgy. There's a radical desire of inclusion by people. And then it speaks about co-responsibility of all the baptized drive to mission with those of other Christian churches and with the uh, other religions, and then creating structures or ways of participation that reflect all this, and then especially in doing so in the liturgy. I think it's safe to say that this document raises a lot more questions than it answers. Uh, This, as we know, is going to be the document that goes off first to the local churches for some feedback, and then it'll be used as the document that guides the next round of the synod process, which is the continental phase. Um, And I wanted to mention that in this report, it's also revealed a little bit more to us about what the job of the continental assemblies is going to be. So they'll be discussing this document, and then they'll be using it to put together a list of priorities for the two global synod meetings in Rome. So the things that, you know, may be more regional, like, for example, the the lack of access to uh, priests or the Eucharist in the Amazon, these things will come up in the continental synods. They'll be made into lists of priorities, and then those priorities are going to shape the, the Rome meetings in 2023 and 2024. So... Lots more to come on this. Jerry, Ricardo, thank you guys so much for taking some time to read through this document and and discuss your takeaways. We'll also mention that this was not meant to be a representative overview of the document. This was our takeaways. So if you want to read the document or America's write-ups on it, we will link to both of those in the show notes. Thanks, y'all. Thank you, Colleen. This is holy ground. Thank you. Strongly recommend people reading the document. For sure. It's only 45 pages. You can do it. (laughs) All right, y'all. We will see you again next week. Thanks. As Jerry mentioned, Pope Francis is headed to Bahrain from November 3rd through 6th to encourage the country's small Catholic minority and to attend another interreligious meeting like he recently did in Kazakhstan. This one is called the Bahrain Forum for Dialogue, East and West for Human Coexistence. 
As usual, the Pope will be meeting with government officials, and in addition to attending the conference, he also has a meeting with his friend, the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar. He'll speak to a meeting of Muslim elders, and then he'll celebrate an ecumenical prayer service and a stadium mass before visiting with a group of school children and the country's clergy, religious, and pastoral workers. We'll have coverage of that trip throughout the weekend at americamagazine.org. And to hear more background on the Synod on Synodality that we were discussing today, you can listen to our deep dive. It's just a few episodes back in your Inside the Vatican podcast feed and linked in the show notes. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn and Ricardo da Silva. Production assistance from Cristobal Spielman. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. To keep up with the latest Vatican coverage from America Magazine, follow us on Twitter at INSDE Vatican Pod. That's inside, without the second I, Vatican Pod. And you can find all of our coverage at americamagazine.org. While you're there, please consider becoming a digital subscriber to America Magazine. It's really easy to do, and it's the best way to support our work here on Inside the Vatican. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell and Ricardo Da Silva, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Deli. We'll see you next time.